Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Um, for those that are curious, just to get it out of the way, I'm walking with a cane today um, because I have a particular ailment that I've been afflicted with for years. Sometimes that ailment acts up and I have to walk with a cane. So I might sit down during the sermon. That's unlikely just because I get too excited. And so if I don't sit down during the sermon, I'll sit down later and you guys can reprimand me, chastise me, whatever later on when I'm refusing to sit down. Yeah. Um, so let's dive right into the text. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We'll read it together. We're going to focus this morning on verses 5 through 8. But let's read the entire portion here of this beautiful, beautiful passage. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God add his reading, may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. It's hard to read that without shouting amen at the end, isn't it? Um, he didn't put that in the text, so I didn't want to say amen, but amen. amen. It's, it's hard to read that without diving right into that. Um, there's a beautiful picture in Scripture where Jesus uh, kneels down to the dirt and starts, he takes his, it says he took his finger and he draws in the dirt. And that word finger in the Gospel of John that's used that one time in the Gospel of John is used a couple times in the Gospel of Luke and it, it's a reference to finger, and it's only used in, in the Gospel of Luke to talk about uh, divine, the divine hand of God or uh, miraculous hand driving out things. And so we've got this incredible picture of Jesus Christ. He's confronted with corrupt legal system, corrupt lawlessness. He's confronted with people who want to stone this woman who clearly entrapped her and caught her. And they want to stone her. Like there's some obvious things going on here. And he bends down to the dirt and he starts to draw in the dirt. And and it, the metaphor is lost on everybody there. And we know it's lost on everybody there because they continue to yell. And if you got the metaphor, you probably would have walked away. But this is God in the flesh kneeling down to the dirt to change it, to alter it, to, to draw on it, to to draw in it, to change the hearts of men. Remember, man is named Adam because he's made from Adam, which is dirt. Named Adam because that's the name dirt. 
So for those of you that have children named Adam, you named them dirt. Um, which is a great picture because dirt is what God breathes life into. So Jesus kneels down to the dirt and he draws in the dirt. And what, what has always struck me about that is he gave the dirt life. He gave them his word. He gave them law. He gave them freedom. He gave them all these things. And yet still, he comes down and kneels down to the dirt and draws in it. How beautiful a picture of that. How beautiful a picture of grace. That God himself comes down to the dirt, taking on human form, becomes dirt himself, that he would save those in the dirt, that he would rescue those who are caught in lawlessness and despair. How beautiful, how amazing that is. So, I bring that up because we are told to imitate this condescension, this coming down. Uh, we are told that Christ is our example and we are to imitate. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are told to imitate this. As we enter this text, I wanted to remind you of that. That as we read verses 5 through 8 here and, and look at them in depth, maybe, maybe it would inspire us to dig down into the dirt a little bit. Um, to try and make the world more beautiful and to, to draw in the dirt like Jesus does amidst the crooked generation. So, verse, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So right there, uh, we, we really ought to translate that um, <clears throat> thinking this way, thinking this way, or, or be thinking this way. Have this mind among yourself makes it some sort of ethereal thing like you could go to a store and buy it and put it in. That's not, that's not what he's getting at. Think this way. Thinking like this. Thinking this way. Let this thinking be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. Think this way. As Christ has done before you, think this way. Think this way which is also in Christ Jesus. Now, take a moment, just think about the idea that this is also in Christ Jesus. Right? It's, here it says, uh, let this in, in the ESV it translates it, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The also there in the Greek implies that, that that's a relatively good translation for us, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The, the also there, when it says, which is also in Christ, implies that, you have access to it too. So this thought process, this ability to think this way, is something you have access to. You are able to think this way. And why are you able to think this way? Because Christ has already done the work. So think this way. Think the way Christ thought, because you are capable of doing it. You are able to think this way, so therefore think like this. Also note, this is plural. This is a plural reality. Think this way. Think the way that everybody thinks this way, the way Christ does, as a body. You all think this way together. Christianity is best lived out in a community of believers that are connected together. We live this faith out best 
when we are spurring each other on to think this way, to think this way together. When we're asking each other, how are you doing? What's, how's your walk going? How's your, how's your life going? How are you dealing with this issue? How are you dealing with that issue? When we're doing that with each other, we are engaging each other and training our minds with each other to think this way. And why are we able to do this? Because Christ has changed our hearts and rescued us. So think this way, which have this mind in you, or be thinking this way, which also is the way Christ was thinking, which is the way he thinks. So think the way Christ thinks. So ponder that for a minute about how Christ, the Lord, thought and presented himself. Just think about that. Jesus declared the lowest person worthy of life. Jesus declared the lowest person worthy of life. Jesus declared the most awkward praise worthy of acceptance by God. The most awkward praise. One of the things I've loved my... My mother, I'm sorry, Mom, I'm telling a story on you. My mother has been listening to the service online, and she's loving joining us for worship. I mean, there's two reasons. Like, I'm, I'm her son, and I'm the baby of the family, so I'm, you know, like, yay, I get to see my boy sing, right? And the second reason, is she told me this the other night, I, I didn't ask permission, so I'm probably going to get in trouble for sharing, but she told me online she can sing as loud as she wants because no one else is in the room. And no one can hear if she's on or off pitch. And so she just blares, she just blasts it. You see, Jesus declares the most awkward praise, the greatest. He delights in the most noisy of joyful noises. In the, in the Bible it says make a joyful noise. It doesn't say make a beautiful sound. Of, I mean, it does say that in other places, but it says make a joyful noise. It says creation groans for the Father. It says the rocks and the trees will cry out praise to God. It doesn't say they will sing beautiful melodies to God. It says they will cry out praise to God. I don't know what a rock or a tree sounds like, but I'm pretty sure it's going to sound very, very different than the music I like to listen to. So, Jesus, think about Jesus. He, he deems the lowest person worthy the adulterous woman thrown before him, the lame man at the pool, the blind guy outside the, outside the temple, people who can't give him anything, the Greek people that nobody wants to talk to, he, he calls his own, the random, uneducated, angry fisherman that was probably kind of foul-mouthed and rough most of the time, the pious guy that stood in the corner uh, stayed over by the fig tree he deems all of them worthy he bends down to the dirt joining with the earth Jesus becomes a man when he had every right to make himself king he becomes a man when he had every right to make himself King. So Jesus comes to us. Christ in you, 
Therefore you are able. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Chapter 2 of Colossians verse 10 says He makes His dwelling within you. And in chapter 3 of Colossians verse 10, He says He is renewing your nature after the image of His Creator. After the image of the Creator. The nature's Creator. He's renewing you constantly. Christ deemed you alive. And he deemed it worthy to come down and join you in your place. So, with that in mind, let's pause for a moment and pray. And ask the Lord to give us this mind. And to train it into us, which he has already given us. Let's ask him. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us uh, your mind. That you would lead us to understand where we are off one way or the other, that we would see you in delight and that we would have the mind of Christ in us. But Lord, more than that, that it would be lived out in us and that we would see it, that we would see it manifest in our being. Lord, we love you and we trust you. Amen. All right, so we've got the second phrase here. We've got, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So we've got this phrase here, though he was in form God. The word form there is the word morphe. Um, morphe, like change, the, but it means form or, or, or shape. But it, it's talking primarily about essence and being. Though he is in very being and in very form, he is God. He is God in form. Though he's in form, God, um, or the way that it reads in Greek is, who being in form, God was existing. So he's, there's an emphasis there that he was being in form. So he's existing in the form of God. He uh, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he, first, he is God. That's the first place we need to stop is he is God. His form, his essence, his being, he is God. He has all authority. He has all the rights. He is the king. He can do what he wishes. So consider that just for a second. God can do anything he wishes to do. So he is in very form. God, at his essence, he was spirit. God is spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 24, God is, I mean chapter 4 verse 24, God is spirit. Then, he's, then the Apostle John says again, no one has ever seen God in 1 John 4, 12. And then uh, he reiterates that in John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. God is invisible spirit beyond our comprehension. Great. And Jesus is in form, was in form God. He is God. Just get that out of the way. So Jesus had Authority, And he had natural authority to do whatever he wanted. He could have done this however he wanted. He is God. There isn't anything that rules over him. There is no dogma that requi- required of him. There is no law that he cannot change. There is, no, uh, there is no hindrance in his plans. He can do all that he declares he wants to do. That's why his coming is so profound. 
That's why his becoming a man is so profound. Because he could have done anything he wanted to do. And what he chose to do was come down to the dirt. To kneel down to us. He could have done anything he wanted to do. He could have made a system of robots that would turn to him and, and hail his name forever. He could have made amazing angels. Indeed, he does. What does he do? He decides to intertwine himself with us and engage us. The ant. I mean, just think about the size, right? How small are you compared to God? And yet, he cares for you. He considers the ant, or the flea, or the dust mite, whatever we would be in size relationship, right? He, he considers you and thinks deeply about you. He did not require, he, so in this, he, he comes down to the earth, he be, he's in the form of God, and being in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The, the King James there reads, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And I think that catches some of the Greek nuance a little better, that word robbery. He didn't think it robbery or theft to be equal with God. And there's two things there going on. Yeah, of course he didn't think it robbery because he was God. He is God. He didn't have to steal it. He didn't have to take it. But the, the other thing going on, the nuance that's caught there, is he didn't feel like he had to keep it. Because when you steal something, you have to keep it. You have to, you have to make it yours and continue to keep it. Yet Jesus didn't steal equality with God. He was equal with God. So he doesn't have to try and hold on to it. It simply is who he is. He doesn't have to try and hold on to it. And he doesn't, he doesn't regard it as something he has to take and hide and keep. Instead, he freely lives it. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's not robbery because he is God. It's also not a thing that he had to clutch as if somehow it was not his right to have it. It's not something he had to grab and clutch and hold to his chest. Rather, he was always willing to lay himself down and be a man. He was willing to lay himself down and be a man. He made himself nothing. So let's, let's look at these verses that follow this, this phrase. Verse 7. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's a bunch of phrases there. The first one is, but he made himself nothing. Or in some versions, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. And the question comes up when you read texts like this. What did the divine creator of all things, the Lord of all glory, what precisely did he empty himself of? What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of what? He became a man, but he emptied himself of what? Well, I think there's some things that we can see in the Gospels. There's some speculation we can do. We can recognize that in this moment, he's talking about rank, position, authority, kingship. He empties himself of those things, definitely. That's obvious. He's emptying himself of rank and position, coming down to the earth, being man. Emptied himself of those things. 
But here we've got some other things. So what did he empty himself of? One, certainly he emptied himself of some knowledge. Some knowledge. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, he's asked about the end. When will the Father return? Or when will, when will this all end? And he says, that's not for me or for you or for anybody to know except the Father. So clearly there's a little bit of knowledge he's emptied himself of in becoming man. There's a little bit of knowledge he emptied himself of. Of the hour, the way he puts it is, of the hour, uh, no one knows. Only the Father knows. And then he emptied himself clearly of wealth of heaven. He emptied himself of the wealth of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, it says, he, Jesus became poor that you may become rich, that you might be rich. He empties himself of the wealth of heaven and becomes man. Can you imagine? You're an eternal being. I know you can't imagine being an eternal being. I, I know it's an unfair question. But, but go ahead and go with me. Can you imagine being an eternal being who has never had to hunger or thirst or anything, and then to go to one day, you're, it's a hot afternoon, and you're walking along with 12 guys who don't seem to get it half the time, and who, who are kind of asking you about sandwiches, and when are we going to eat, and you're near a city that, that they're all racist towards, and there's a woman sitting by a well, and you're thirsty, and she comes to the well, and you're thirsty, and you have never, you're an eternal being, and you have before this, before becoming man, never dealt with thirst. But then you became man and you dealt with every bit of thirst and hunger and need. Can you imagine? I can't. I can't imagine what it's like not to be thirsty or not to be hungry or, or not to have needs. He emptied himself of the wealth of heaven. He empties himself of the wealth of heaven. He empties himself also a little bit of authority. You see, before this, he was God. He was God. Did what he wants all the time. But after this, he is submissive to the Father at every turn. He says it over and over. In John chapter 5, verse 36, verse 38, 7, verse 28 through 29. And that's just three examples of times when he literally says, I can do nothing except what the Father tells me, and I only do what the Father says, and I, am, I do what the Father says to do. He is in perfect obedience at all times to his Father, and he submits his will to the Father. No greater example there is there of this than when he's in the garden, and he says straight up, not my will, but yours be done. He submits himself to the Father. And then here, I think the last one we could probably argue for is that he, he empties himself of the immediate presence of God. Empties himself of the immediate presence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's one example. But he also has to go up on a hill to pray. Why? Because the world is loud and noisy. He has to go off by himself to pray. Why? Because the, Lord, the world is loud and noisy and we need to hear from the Father. He needed to hear from the Father and he couldn't just turn off everything. He had to go find space. So I think those are things that he empties himself of. He empties himself of those things and understand in emptying himself of those things, he becomes me. He becomes you. He becomes like we are, having to pray, having to fast, 
having to listen to hear from the Lord. He becomes like us. He becomes like us. So he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. This is what his, this is, this was his doing. His actions. No, he emptied himself. Nobody emptied him. He emptied himself. This was his action. This was his doing in the face of a people who reject his law, who reject his love, who reject his mercy. Jesus' response is to empty himself of all the privileges that he has and rights that he has over those people. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Yes, I know you have the right to say the things you say. I know you have the right to stand up and, and argue. I know you have the right. That's yours. It's your right to say these things. I know that it's your right. But have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus and deny yourself some rights. Deny yourself some privilege. And for what? For the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the world would look at us and see salvation has come and we can be different. We can be different. You can accept humility also. So then he says here, the next phrase, so that's the first one, emptied himself. Then he says, taking the form of a servant. Now in Greek this is beautiful, because at the beginning it says, being in form God, or in form, God, in form of God being, existing in the form of God. Then this phrase says, the form taking. It says here, taking the form of a slave. It says, slave form taking. God being in form, God in form being, slave form taking. And that throws you off because what you expect to hear is man form taking. Man's form taking. You expect God to be contrasted with man and for it to say, in the, taking the form of a man. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say taking the form of a man. He says, slave. Doulos. Greek word, slave. He doesn't just take the form of a man. He takes the lowest man form possible. He takes the lowest form possible. Having every right to remain God, he becomes Slave, not just man, but slave, down to the bottom. This is beautiful. Jesus being God, in essence, makes himself, in the same word, morphe, makes himself essence man. Makes himself at his essence man. It is even more beautiful when we consider these words, that being God in form he becomes slave in form, on purpose. He takes that form, too. It's an active verb. He takes the form of a slave. Being in form God, he takes the form of a slave. Is there any, any, anything in you that prevents you from going to the lowest, to considering yourself the lowest? If there is anything in you that, is, that prevents you from considering yourself to be the lowest, you need to hear this convicting phrase, that's not the mind of Christ. 
the mind of Christ puts himself at the bottom. He didn't just become a man, he became a slave. He became a servant of all. I, the, the Son of Man came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve, right? This is the idea. He came lowest, to the lowest denominator, making himself the lowest. Made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And the next one, being born in the likeness of man. This is uh, a different word. It's not form. Uh, it's homeo, homeomati. I know I messed up the Greek word there, but that's it's it's the likeness or the appearance of man. Likeness being the internal referent here, meaning that he really did become man. What Paul is trying to drive home for you is that Christ, God Almighty really did become physically man. He became a man. This was not some sort of spiritual endowment of some physical body. This was not a spirit walking around on the earth in human form or with a human skin on. This is God becoming man. We get it right in church history when we say he was 100% God and 100% man. Fully God, fully man is the way that we put it in church history. This is the idea that he is a uh, confounding of our own wisdom. He is fully man. We couldn't and we wouldn't live up to his image. You see, in the garden, God created man, male and female, he created them, and he told them to uh, take dominion, spread out over the whole earth, cover the earth with his glory. That his image would cover the earth. That's the purpose. That the image of God would cover the earth to the glory of God's name and his great power and everyone would see God because he is God. And there is nothing else worthy. And man was put in a garden, told to cultivate that garden and spread that garden out. Where is man in the story? He's in the middle of the garden, sitting next to the tree. He's not supposed to be. And and Adam and Eve, and you know the story, snake comes up the tree, talks to Eve. Adam takes the fruit from his wife. They eat together. They, They end up getting, they sin against God. They end up trying to sew their own fig leaves on to cover themselves, and that doesn't work. And God has to cover them with robes, and they get kicked out of the garden to work the ground, and now the ground is cursed because of sin against God and it will not yield its fruit but there's a prophecy given in the midst of the curse that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake and all will be restored sin will be destroyed and life will be granted again and that seed of the woman is Jesus Christ who has come to rescue and he died on the cross crushing the head of the snake and restoring paradise restoring peace with God and Sabbath rest with him. Jesus came down when we wouldn't live up to his image. Not only do we not live up, not only can we not live up, but we wouldn't. Romans chapter 3 makes that incredibly clear. No one seeks after God. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. No, not one. We all have turned away. So whether you are you that you can't or that you won't, truth is it's not getting done by our hands. By the works of the law, no one is justified. But God, being rich in mercy, with great love with which he loved us, sent Jesus Christ to rescue 
who dies on the cross in your place and is resurrected, that you would have life. We couldn't and wouldn't live up to his image, so he came down to the dirt, knelt down to the dirt, down to us, and drew in our hearts to change who we are. He came down and he became in the likeness of man, being born in the likeness of man. Consider that too. He was born. He was born. That means Jesus at one point was a baby. Babies cry. They make noise. They laugh. They giggle. They poop. They can't pick themselves up for a time. They have to learn to walk. Jesus did not come out of the womb speaking seven languages. He didn't come out of the womb changing his own diaper. He was a baby, dependent on his mother for food, dependent on other people to carry him. He had to learn. He became a man. He really became man. It's not a halfway thing. He came to meet you where you are, in the state that you are. That is beautiful. You couldn't get to him. There was no hope for you to reach him. And he came and met you. He knelt down to the dust. Then we've got this phrase, being found in human form. This is not the word morpha. This is the word schema, where we get our word schemata, um, or, or schematics, right? This is where we get our word for it, design. So this word here, being found in human design, might be a better word here, being found in the design of a human. Um, the, the idea here of being found is the idea of being discovered in human design, as though uh, as Christ grew, everybody was still shocked that he stayed physically the human design. So he's born as a baby and he grows to be a man. He grows up to be a man. He was really man. He had the design and the structure of a man. He's a human being. He's the only, and I would say he's the only human being, because he's the only one with the perfect being of God, meaning consistent and totally self, self-sufficient and statically the same. And yet he's a man, so he's growing. The rest of us, R.C. Sproul puts it this way, the rest of us are all human becomings. Because we're always changing. We're just constantly changing. We're always becoming something else. But Christ remained the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same. He is constantly. But He was designed man. He was in man's design. So He is the perfect man. And He really was... Man, so being found in this way, being found as a man, these are these five, these four statements that are made. He uh, he made himself nothing. He took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. Being found in human form, Jesus made himself nothing, and he made himself discoverable for you. That's what the word being found means. He, he made himself discoverable for you to see, to know. And then it says this beautiful phrase, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ lowered himself to us that we would be rescued and redeemed. Most of our English insert this phrase here, by 
in obedient, when it says obedience, that word is not there. The by is not there. By becoming obedient, um, that word by is not there. It should, it should read something along the lines of, um, he humbled himself being or becoming obedient to the point of death. Um, obedience, that radical obedience is knit in Christ's nature. That radical obedience is knit in the nature of Jesus Christ. It is the validity or the validation of what has existed in him. So that radical obedience is who he is. It's a part of his being. And guess what that means? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's part of yours too. That radical obedience means that if you believe in Christ, you can radically obey Jesus. You can radically obey the Father the way He has called you to. When the world tells you what you're going to do doesn't make any sense, you can look at them and go, I know it doesn't make any sense, but I can obey my Father in heaven. And He makes it work. What do you mean you're going to give so much to missions? What do you mean you're going to give so much to your church? What do you mean you're going to give so much to your neighbor who's poor? What do you mean you're going to spend all your money on that thing? You're just throwing away stuff. Shouldn't you invest that? Listen, I'm listening to God, and He told me to give it here, or to do it here, or to do this there, or to surrender that. What do you mean you're not going to answer that back? What do you mean you're not going to respond to them? What do you mean you're just going to let them say what they say behind your back? Well, Jesus Christ humbled Himself, taking the very form of a slave, being found in human form. He humbled Himself in obedience to a cross, to the point of death, to death on a cross. He was lashed. He was beaten. He walked up a hill carrying His own instrument of death and died. And that mind is in me and in us together. Radical obedience is something we are capable of of doing something we're capable of doing even death on a cross he humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross Isaiah 53 verse 7 which we're going to read at the end of the service here it says he was oppressed and afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like sheep that is before its shearers is silent he opened not his mouth. We have the mind of Christ and we are able to do this. We are able to be this way, to be obedient. So consider again that story where Jesus kneels down to the dirt. He stoops down and he starts to write in the dirt. He's just imagine being there. He's standing when they get there and he's teaching. And they bring this woman into a crowd embarrassed and ashamed, probably not fully clothed, and throw her down in an effort to embarrass her in anger. Jesus, the law says to stone her. What do you say? looks out at them and he answers. He bends down to the dirt and starts to write in it. If 
effectively communicating to them what the law could not do. I am doing. What the law could not do, I am doing. I am skin and bone with you. And what the law could not do, what the law could not save and rescue, what the law could not free you from, I am doing. I am down in the dirt recreating your soul. And how am I doing it? I'm going to take your sin upon myself, and I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to go, where are your accusers? And when you say, I have none, you're right, because I stand before you, the God of heaven and earth. This is Jesus to the lady, right? Jesus looks at her, goes, where are your accusers? And I have none. And he tells her, that's in, without saying a word, looks at her, and she, I think she knew. And she knew, you, Jesus, take my sin upon yourself, and as a result, there is no one to accuse me. Because the judge of all righteous glory has said that I am free and that the law does not bind me. Then down to draw in the dirt and we are rescued. We are changed. How glorious. How wonderful. How marvelous is our God. That mind. Jesus' mind. That one that looks at the the men with the stones, you know, he doesn't condemn the men with the stones either. He says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone, and he lets them condemn themselves. He doesn't point at them and go, you wicked, vile men who set this woman up. He doesn't go, where's the husband? That's pastors. Pastors think of those questions. Well, where's the husband? Right. Yeah, it's an awful situation. They are wicked and they're behaving wickedly and they're claiming righteousness. Jesus doesn't look at them and condemn them either. He just kneels down to the dirt and starts drawing at it. Effectively saying, I'm going to change your hearts. I'm going to take your sin upon myself. I'm going to take your reproof upon myself. I'm going to take all these things on myself and I'm going to let you be free because I took the wrath for you. Beautiful. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have that mind. When someone wrongs you, when something goes wrong, when things are wicked, we have that mind. We can think that way. And I tell you, the world cannot. Unsaved, non-believing people cannot think this way. They cannot empty themselves of everything. But indeed, we already have. They can't humble themselves to the point of death, even death on a cross. Indeed, Christ has done that for us, changing our souls, and we are able. They, the world, what we used to be, they're caught in sin. And there is a Lord who has come to rescue them. And who has come to save them. Who came and saved us. And as a result, we can live as testimonies that Christ writes in the dirt and transforms hearts. So Paul's call to the Philippians here is the same call to us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So let's strive to live it out. 
and to be this way together. Father,